0: This podcast is brought to you by our patrons on Patreon. Before I kick things off here, I want to give you all a little personal update. Things for me have only gotten busier. I am now not only choked for time as it relates to Panspending Studios and being a dad, but I've also taken on a seasonal full-time position with Amazon Customer Service, which has taken a large swath of my time every week. That plays a big part to why my presence on the internet in any form has dwindled to very close to the bare minimum. It's been a couple of months since my last medication update, as well as any update as it relates to my journey to mental stability. I will take the time in today's episode to give you all a brief rundown on that, but I won't steal too much of the time away from the topic. I would much rather help others than blather on about myself. I was asked to cover addiction, and I can safely assume they mean as it relates to mental illness. While addiction and mental illness are often viewed as different things, they go hand-in-hand more often than not. In today's show, I'm going to cover what I know of addiction, share my own history with it, and try to shed some light on why there always seems to be a correlation. A lot of us have had to deal with addiction, whether that's in the form of the addict, or the form of the loved one of an addict. I am both of these things, and that makes it a lot harder and easier in a few different ways. I hope I'm able to truly address this issue in the time I have to be with you today. Let's skip the long intros and get right into the show. Welcome to the Darkest Corner Podcast brought to you by Pantsmanning Studios. I'm your host and story sharer, Andrew. As I promised at the top of the show, let's get my personal update to you out of the way. After finally being able to take advantage of the Affordable Care Act and get health insurance that actually fits my budget, I was able to see a therapist. I've only seen him once so far at the time of this writing, but I think it went pretty well. This was done in an establishment that was the very same that made me terrified of pursuing professional help, and even more terrified of medication. I didn't go into the appointment with high hopes, but I came out of it a lot more satisfied with it than I pictured I would be. The appointment was scheduled to last 30 minutes, and we were talking for two hours. Once done, he immediately said he intends to see me regularly, and that is a great first step. When I saw the other therapist at this care center eight plus years ago, he threw pills at me and made no intention of seeing me again. The other thing I got out of this meeting was some reassurance to my own suspicions. Taking only what the quack from eight years ago said, I did a lot of research back then, and I did fit the bill pretty heavily for borderline personality disorder even more back then. But before ever going in there, i had always leaned on it must be bipolar, for the privacy of others, I won't go into why I thought so for sure that I was bipolar, but there was plenty of strong evidence that it was there. But enter the quack. I know it's disrespectful and rude to call him that, but even if he was right about the borderline, he nearly killed me and tossed me aside, and that's just not what I think someone in that field should act like. Anyway, enter the quack and his have Borderline Personality Disorder with Narcissistic Tendencies. And I ate that right up, because it sounded so well thought out. His brief description of the symptoms of Borderline fit mine so closely. But he never really explained what it was. Obviously, you all and I have gone over personality disorders, including Borderline, before, so I will spare you that. However, towards the end of this most recent session with the new doc, he tells me that he can definitely see the personality disorder, but he is hard-leaning... On also being bipolar. Once he said it, a lot of things fell into place all over again. Sure, eight or more years ago before that, I thought I had bipolar. But the quack said it was borderline, so I brushed it off as my not being a doctor. Yet, here we are, so many years later, just to have a new and better doctor tell me I was right all those years ago. Well, probably, because unlike the other doc, He doesn't want to come to any set conclusions after only seeing me once, because that's not something that a half-an-hour session can do, even after it taking two hours. What he did do was up my dose on the meds I'm already taking. Turns out the dosage I was on before, and even after my L&I doctor bumped up the dose, well, it was not nearly as high as it would normally be if it was used for depression. I was on a lower dose, which was more for pain management, which makes sense. My L&I doctor isn't a shrink, so she could only do so much in her purview. However, that's where I'm at. Higher doses with regular appointments in the future. Don't worry, no matter what happens, I'm not going anywhere. I'm still in this fight with you all, no matter what's on the horizon for my own personal fight. Alright, let's get back on topic here. Addiction. It can be associated to mental illness in three key ways. 1. Certain mental illnesses can create a mental environment that increases one's propensity to become addicted to things. You'll notice I said things, and not drugs, and that's important, but that will be covered soon. 2. A high number of different drugs, even some of the legal ones, can make you chemically dependent on them, thus addiction, but also carry with it the side effect of mental illness. For example, a person who has a hard time sleeping and decides to take over-the-counter nighttime medicines to stay asleep, say Tylenol PM, well, taking that every night to make sure you get to sleep will eventually make it so you will not be able to sleep if you don't take it, and in higher and higher doses as your body builds a tolerance. That dependency can and almost always will carry with it the weight of depression anxiety, and more. The third in the list is kind of a draw. In a lot of cases, there just isn't a clear what came first. A high number of mental illnesses cause memory issues, and so do drugs and alcohol. So in that case, it's nearly impossible to know if the chicken or the egg came first, to coin a cliche. Let me go off on a little bit more about me. I'm sure I've mentioned in the past, but now today we're talking about it, so let's dig deep. I have a huge addiction problem. I'm a huge risk of alcoholism, and over the last year, I am at a risk for opioid addiction. Prescription pain medications like Vicodin, which is what I take, and oxycodone are huge gateway-type drugs that can often, and do, lead people to worse things, like heroin. I have them to take for my constant agonizing back pain but it doesn't make them any less dangerous the only reason i haven't yet become full-blown addicted to them i think is because of my terror i guess you could say i have a phobia of chemical addictions and it probably kicked off with how swiftly i became addicted to nicotine i do hold to today that active addiction to nicotine but i have taken on a safer not safe safe her route with the electronic cigarettes. Not to jump on a tirade about how stupid people are for letting big tobacco push legislation through to cripple the electronic cigarette industry and will end up forcing 75% of its users back to much more harmful cigarettes, chew, and pipe tobaccos. But yeah, those things I just said. That's perpetuation of uneducated ignorance. Just because the safer alternative is still 10% unsafe does not mean we should all jump back onto cigarettes and tobacco that are 100% unsafe. Anyway, off the soapbox, I bring that up for a reason. Once you become addicted, you are always an addict. That's going to be hard to hear, and it's going to likely get a lot of scrutiny from anyone who listens who is a former smoker. It's hard to hear. It's hard to hear that something you did in your youth forever changed who you are. But that's just how life goes in the fragile bodies we have. Once our bodies get hooked, there will always be hooked. But Andrew, you ask, I quit smoking 20 years ago, and I don't think I'm still an addict. That's just fine. If you've suppressed it down to such a level that you are subconsciously squashing it, awesome. That's a great place to be. It means that despite the urges, the memories, the cravings, you have distanced yourself from it— so successfully that it merely is an afterthought. I dream of having it under that much control. But that's the crux of it. Having it so under control that it's not hard anymore doesn't mean it's gone. It's not gone. It will never be gone. Ask any recovering alcoholic. Ask them how long until they aren't a recovering alcoholic anymore. I can answer that now. They're always a recovering alcoholic. Always. Drugs are a completely different monster. Drugs can alter your brain chemistry so thoroughly that a perfectly sane, mentally balanced person can walk away from one poor decision with methamphetamine and be a full-blown schizophrenic for the rest of their lives. One bad day where your weed was laced with heroin and suddenly you're dead with a needle hanging out of your arm. One, oh come on, it's not like you can get addictive by doing it just once and you're in and out of hospitals for treatment for your AIDS or hepatitis. Drug addictions are one of the most powerful and terrifying forces in people's lives. They can sober up just long enough to realize how much they've torn their lives apart, and their families apart, and their bodies apart, but that addiction... That addiction cannot just convince you that you want to do the drugs again. It can literally take over your actions and thoughts as if you were making those decisions on your own and force that needle in your arm, that bottle to your lips, those pills down your throat, while you are convinced it was your idea. You're assaulted. You are violated, not by some violent criminal, but by your addiction. I mention alcoholism, and this is one I take deeply to heart. This is the biggest flag on my addiction terror list. It has its place there because I have seen what alcoholism does to a person, and to me, it's the worst of all. It can turn a calm person violent. It can turn a kind soul into an emotional abuser. It can turn a concerned parent into a manipulative tyrant. It destroys you from your body to your brain. It will change the way your brain operates like any other drug or nicotine. I see too many people that treat alcoholism as a joke. Even I will catch myself jokingly bantering with somebody over their, quote, alcoholism when they just drink more than I do, which nowadays is next to never. Or they might have a real serious problem and I just don't know what to do. I lack the confidence to help someone in that situation because I have failed so many times in every attempt. But drugs, alcohol, and nicotine are not at all the only addictions that can take serious hold of your life. Sometimes all it takes is something that gives you that little piece of endorphins that you lack in your everyday life. Sometimes the darkness swallows you so thoroughly that the only light is diving into those empty addictions for a small piece of fantasy, disconnection, even joy. No, drugs and alcohol are aren't the only addictive things in our lives. Sometimes it's technology. Sometimes it's stories. Something to take you out of the life your misery gives you and drop you into a fantasy world where things just make sense. Whether to you that's video games, movies, television, or even the website posing as real life, Facebook. How often do you sit back and feel bad that you are so miserable when there are so many optimistic Hopeful, happy people in the world because look at Facebook. I mean, it's just ripe with optimism and inspirational memes and stories of heroes and triumphs. It's watching all the good things that happen to people while you yourself can't even compare. Stop trying to compete with 7 billion people. It's a waste of energy that you need to heal. The internet connects billions of people worldwide. We get to see the news from every part of the world and have access to everything. That means that true stories of heroism spread like wildfire because we live in an interconnected world and who doesn't love a story about a firefighter bringing a kitten back to life? These are targeted attacks on our self-image. No one of us could possibly hold a candle to even a small fraction of the quote inspiring stories we are bombarded with every day. It's a rare occasion to see someone be able to celebrate just making it through the day. Some of us struggle with that every day. But next to rescues, charities, and all the other stories of people doing wondrous things, we become insignificant. But we aren't insignificant. We are one individual of seven billion individuals. Standing out in that crowd is no easy feat, do not feel unimportant because you can't measure up to your friend who is always traveling the world. Don't feel unimportant because you miss out on adventures because you're a parent. Don't feel unimportant because you don't have kids and all your friends do. The best way to say it is, don't measure yourself against other people. Instead, just be the best you that you can be, because that is all that matters. Addictions can cause mental illness. Mental illness can cause addiction. But no matter how the cookie crumbles, we all must fight for ourselves and fight for each other to put a stop to unhealthy addictions as much as possible. Having a loved one that is an addict is a very painful thing, because for the most part, you feel helpless. You cannot be held accountable for the mistakes of others. So you do your best, and if it fails, you at least tried. A lot of these addicts, don't have anyone trying. But some of them do. Addiction becomes you. You are no longer making those decisions for yourself. So it takes a huge amount of effort and will to break away from addiction. It's the reason the saying, to really quit, you have to want to quit, is a thing. If you have no better reason to quit than the reasons other people tell you, you will never succeed. The first step in recovery is admitting you have a problem. If you've come to me as an addict, or as just a concerned loved one looking for advice, here it is. If you or someone you know is an addict of any kind, please find a rehabilitation center in your hometown and either visit, if you're the addict, or encourage your loved one to visit these support systems. Alcoholics Anonymous has been around for 81 years, and it's lasted that long because they have created a support and encouragement system that works. Trust in them. There are similar offshoots, for Narcotics Anonymous, and more, they all follow similar tenets that AA lives by, the 12-step program. And like I just said, the first step in that program is admitting you have a problem, and that is the hardest step. After that, it becomes easy, because your mind has finally allowed you to see the error in your ways, and that opens doors to real rehabilitation. Don't give up. You will mess up, but you must pick yourself back up and keep working. Mental illness, in whatever form it takes, makes our lives very difficult. Nothing is ever going to be easy. But if you can bring yourself to finally accept that you are going to have to work harder than anyone without it, you will have a better time working with it. It's been a long time since we've done a show and discussed a submission. And as much as I could go on and on about addiction for the next several hours, I don't want to push off the submission, and I don't want to occupy too much of your time. Life is busy, and I don't want to add to that. Today's submission is also quite long, so bear with me as we get through the whole thing, and then I will share my thoughts. Here we go. Hello. Thank you for the Darkest Corner podcast and for reading my message. My apologies up front for the length of this message. I promise I did cut out a whole bunch feel free to cut some out or paraphrase if needed. I'm not going to. I was first introduced to your podcast when I listened to episode 7, Living and Loving with Mental Illness, and very much liked the fact that you allowed your wife to speak. Hearing how it is for her living with a loved one who has a mental illness was very helpful to me. Fortunately, or unfortunately as the case may be for me, my loved one is not a spouse or a romantic partner and most of the information out there is for family and relationship partners. I just finished listening to episode 5, Controls of Impulse, as I went back and started from the beginning, so I wouldn't miss any. At the end of that episode, you mentioned how you used to be the bad friend, and that now you've changed after having lost some of the good ones. I have a friend whom most people in my life would call a bad friend, and I believe she has borderline personality disorder. I believe this in part to my belief before discussing it with her but also due to the fact that when i did discuss it with her she said yes to all nine symptoms unfortunately she has not been diagnosed and while initially she was very glad to have a possible reason for behaviors which she dislikes in herself a bad reaction from a partner at the time led her to reject the possibility of borderline personality disorder yet she fits the behaviors every single one And unfortunately, I am on the losing end of experiencing most of them. She calls me her best friend, but it's been almost two years, and I've realized that label means so much more to me than how she treats me. I have trouble calling her my friend, and even now I don't think I could use the words best friend. When we first met, she was extremely into hanging out and talking. We have daughters around the same age, and they too became fast friends. Unfortunately, we met just before she began going through a divorce with her husband of five years. Slowly but surely, things changed. Over just a few months, I saw things that didn't make sense, and by six months, I was sure something much more than the depression and anxiety she told me she suffered with was going on. At times, she would drop out of contact just a few days, sometimes a few weeks, at most a month, She talked about people that I knew previous to meeting her, and things she said didn't match up with what I knew about them. I would listen to how she talked about her family, in particular her mother. One day she loved and appreciated her, the next she was saying how much she hated her and everything she did. It all became so confusing, and I started to feel like my friend was two different people. I had to walk on eggshells, never knowing which one I would meet. I've been put down, as has my daughter. I have been yelled at and raged at, which is actually one of the main reasons I found BPD. I needed a reason for the behavior, as I could not believe the woman I loved, my best friend, meant these awful things she said, like, get out of my life. BPD fit, and she agreed. I now have multiple online support groups and a therapist as I needed someone who understood BPD. As most people, when they hear about her behavior, simply say, what a, insert bad word. One time, while yelling at her own daughter, my daughter ran and hid in a closet upstairs. I have never felt more awful. I remembered back to my own childhood, when I did the same thing. I immediately felt like a bad mother for exposing my daughter to this woman. This woman, who was supposed to be our friend, whom we loved dearly, Men have come and gone. Her daughter still passed back and forth between her and her now ex-husband. My daughter and I have also been ignored at different times, which means my daughter doesn't even get to see her friend. Twice now, there have been several month spans where she just ignores us. Last time I phoned and texted, usually to no response. I even went to a party she was also at, and I was literally ignored even though I went up and said hello. I had done nothing to deserve that treatment. We left the party, my daughter in tears, in part because my friend made it difficult for our daughters to play together. This time, during her absence, I have forced myself to abstain, partly on the advice of my therapist, and I thought that would be enough for my friend to realize she needs to treat us better. I was wrong. When I knew it was coming, I told her, she has taught me not to call, and I did not text. The silence was only broken because our birthdays came around, just a few days apart, as well as my daughter's. She texted a birthday message and said we should get together. The meeting happened, and even though there was no mention of these past few months of ignoring our existence, it was good to see my friend again. My daughter also got to see her daughter, and her new boyfriend even came as well. Unfortunately, he knows nothing of how she treats us, or other people for that matter. She can only have one close relationship at once, so every time she gets someone new in her life, we are kicked to the curb. No warning, no discussion allowed, even though I know by now when it's coming. I feel stupid every time, trusting that maybe this time she will stay. That one day she will learn that we are worthy of her time and consideration. I feel stupid that she came over and invited my daughter and I to hang out with her and her daughter later that week. I feel stupid that I believed her, especially when she said she'd call to make the plans. I felt really stupid when the call didn't come that night. I did get an apology text, and she said she'd call on to the next night. I felt stupid when the call never came and sent a text asking if we were still on for our plans the following day. Nothing and most of the day passed with no word. That night, we got another apology text. She had her excuses. She always does. She has said in the past that I expect too much of her, but the reality for us is that we expect nothing. She puts the expectations out there on herself. Then she fails them. We don't make them or put them on her. We just believe her at her word, and I feel very stupid when I believe it. Again, my daughter was let down and hurt, yet I feel I shouldn't feel surprised, and I also feel stupid again. I was recently told by someone I reached out to who was previously diagnosed with BPD, who has since done a lot of work to recover, that I am not distanced enough. I am still too and close to easily available because when she wanted to make plans, I said yes. We ended up hurt. Again. When we were stood up, my daughter's response, it doesn't matter. She learned to expect nothing. That plans with our friend and her daughter will always fall through. She will always have excuses, and she cannot be bothered to even pick up the phone and say hello. I understand BPD. I understand it a lot. At one point in my life, I possibly would have been diagnosed myself. Since then, I've grown a lot and learned a lot. I'm nearly 10 years older than my friend. She hasn't had the time that I did. I'm not sure what to do anymore. This woman means the world to me. I want to be her friend. I want to stay her friend forever. I love her unconditionally. But I'm realizing, just because I love her unconditionally doesn't mean that our friendship is unconditional. She does not show any regard for our friendship. Yes, I know she is fighting her own demons with her mind and her thoughts plaguing her, that's the worst part of me that I do understand, that I get it completely. Yet, I have gotten to a point where I do not feel that is an excuse. She feels she can treat us like this and just expects us to always go there. I never leave, so in reality, I am always there. Yet, if this new boyfriend ever proposes, a definite possibility in part because he has no idea about any of these behaviors, she will call me out of the blue to share her excitement and take up my role as her maid of honor, a role I said yes to last time. I believed she had left for the last time, a time when she was putting effort into our friendship and treating it with care. Now, I will most likely have to say no, which will unleash a wall of fury I will be glad I won't have to be witness to it. Although, I feel for the boyfriend who will get caught in the brunt of it. When she calls around Christmas to invite me over for the holiday celebrations and to open presents, I will again have to decline. We have presents for her and her daughter, even her boyfriend, and she is welcome to come and open them at our house. To be in her home in front of her family and boyfriend, etc. All of these people who have no idea even half of what she puts us through that I cannot do this year. My saying no will break her, but for me and my daughter, I cannot say yes anymore. When she causes us so much pain, she'll always be welcome here. Yet this last time she came over was only a handful of times in the last year, so she will probably say no. But I have to remember, that's her decision. I have told her I want her in my life. If she doesn't show up, that's her choice. If you ever could do an episode on friendship and allow some friends to speak, as you did, your wife, that would be amazing. If you could offer advice, that would be great. You mentioned at the end of episode 5 to remove toxic people. And I know in my logical mind, as you called it, that my friend is 100% a toxic person, unfortunately for both of us. Well, really for all of us involved. However, in my heart, emotionally, I do not wish to cut her out of my life. As far as I know, I am the only person who knows that her behaviors are that of borderline personality disorder, and not simply her being a bad person, or a bad word, or a bad friend. I'm the only person who understands. I do not want to remove the one person who actually knows her, all of her, even the dark parts, the one person who she came to when she is truly at a low, whom she doesn't have to hide things from. How can I be there yet not continue this cycle of hurt for both myself and my daughter? I cannot see whatever it is ending well, when it will most likely be a conversation by text or phone whenever she happens to need me to show up for something like the planning of her wedding as the maid of honor, or her Christmas party so that she doesn't have to make up excuses as to why we aren't there. That I am not looking forward to. Thank you very much for your time and any advice you may offer. Take care. Signed, one of the good ones. A friend of someone with borderline struggling to even use the word friend. All right, I'm going to admit that I am cheating right now in my response because I want to make sure I cover any and all concerns this covered. I'm writing my responses as I read them. Also, dear one of the good ones. Let me apologize profusely for how long it took me to finally get to your submission, and to anyone else whom I have not gotten to yet. That is the biggest anchor of guilt I have, and I am in the works for changing how I handle submissions as they relate to episodes. In a nutshell, I am likely going to start recording short extra episodes for submissions as they come, so the submitters don't have to wait until I finally put a show together to hear it. Starting from the top, Amanda came to me and told me she had been writing an episode of the show for her to do, and explained in shorthand what she wanted to do with it. I thought it was a great idea, even if in the end it may have painted me off as the bad guy in some ways. It still needs to be heard. Being the loved one in the situation can be just as hard as dealing with your own mental illness, so I felt it was important that she tell her side, and thank you for the compliments about that. And I definitely sympathize with you and your friend. I have had friends be that to me, as I, as you pointed out, have been that myself. And it absolutely doesn't have to be your spouse to have put you in that position at all. To me, my friends are my family. So it would hurt me even more if they treated me the way I used to treat everyone. I'm glad she was so willing, at first, to discuss her possible mental health issue. But just based on your description, how she was very glad to have a possible reason for her behaviors i'm wary in that especially with borderline and bipolar some people will use their diagnosis as an excuse for bad behavior instead of using the newfound information to actively prevent it there does come a certain amount of guilt for behaving so irrationally poorly to other people Much worse when dealing with close friends and loved ones. But on the other end of the coin, deep down, they often don't see that what they are doing is wrong. A little bit of the, you're not sorry because of what you did, you're sorry because you got caught kind of mentality. I know this one, because for a long time, that's exactly what I did. I used my mental illness as an excuse and a free pass to be a jerk, and I lost a lot of friends because of it. One thing I know from my experience is borderline sufferers have an extremely hard time maintaining long-term connections with people. So old friends get forgotten and replaced by the new friends. Because it's new. That rings true for me as well i have lost way too many friends based purely on who i was the longer i knew someone the more i expected from them and once you blow up on someone so many times it becomes extremely hard to be around them because you feel guilty but you are incapable of communicating that without snark passive aggression or just full-on yelling the put downs the anger the irrationality those are definitely signs of an underlying problem for sure and it does fit borderline pretty well, but don't rule out anything completely. I just learned recently that I might also be suffering from full-blown bipolar as well, so it could very well be a mixture of things. I will get into that a little later in my answers here. No matter who this woman is to you, I have to speak to you as a parent now. If this woman is verbally abusing her child in front of your child, or even so far as verbally abusing your child directly, you must not bring your child around her anymore. I know you want to help, and that is exactly what you should do, but as you already know, your child's life is more important than anything else, and being regularly exposed to that kind of abuse will affect her for the rest of her life. A couple more things, and I will conclude my advice for you. One, The new is always better attitude she seems to have is a pretty strong sign of borderline. The narcissism side. Two, when she makes plans and then doesn't follow through, that's something that I have done and sometimes still do, and it's a battle of two forces. The desire to make people happy, not actually caring about their feelings, but more taking any negative spotlight away from me, or her in this case, and the inability to differentiate between the importance of friendship and her own desire for only new things. Alright, now that that's out of the way, let me try to give you the best advice that I can. When you mentioned about my remove toxic people comment, it doesn't quite fit the bill for this situation, but the end result is still the same. You are faced with, in my opinion, an inevitable end to this friendship I've said it over and over that I have lost many friends, but not every single one of those were my fault. Sometimes it was the toxic person removal I had to do that removes people who don't treat me the way a friend or a family member should. And that's just fine and dandy, but I also had to remove people who I dearly cared about for no other reason than that they had a mental illness and refused my help or refused to get help. I will say right now that if I hadn't acknowledged my illness and was actively every day working on it and trying to be better and showing even the little bit of progress, Amanda would not have stood by my side, and I would not have deserved it. If a person is aware of their illness or have vehemently refused his existence and you have exhausted all efforts you are able to give, it's time for the hard lesson. You're going to have to break communication, and they are going to need to know why that is very important. You have to end this friendship, but you need to tell her exactly why, because without that communication, you will only be to her what all the old disconnected friends were and be a distant memory. But being told that the illness she refuses to seek help for is the reason you are forced to end the friendship, no matter what she says to you, she's going to remember that. She might end up trying to pry out, quote, the real reason you're mad, but don't divert your path. Many things could come of this situation, and one of the most likely is that she has an emotional breakdown and will plead for forgiveness, and that may not come right away. However, when it does, you need to stand your ground. Do not give in to promises that she'll get help, promises that she'll be different. When you are immobile, she will likely flip into anger, and that's when you walk away stop responding to texts or hang up the phone, whichever way this conversation goes down. Because the next possible thing that will happen is that she will skip the pleading and go right for anger. She could end up losing her temper because, quote, how dare you question who she is? That's when you just cut contact immediately. What it boils down to here is the longer you stick around, the longer she doesn't know she has to worry about seeking help. If there are no tangible consequences, People won't change bad behavior. I say this from direct experience from losing Amanda and suddenly turning into a single dad who only sees his kid on the weekends. It took a major loss to even prime the engines for a change. It was a perceived betrayal from my mother that kicked it into full speed. My mother had finally given up on trying to help me. She kicked me out with nowhere to go and wanting nothing more to do with me. I was completely lost, and it finally drove some immediate self-inspection and being honest with myself. And I realized how broken I was, and how that needed to change immediately. I had to lose it all to understand what I had lost. It was a catalyst, and I wouldn't be who I am today, right now, as I speak to you, if I didn't go through it. Mind you, there is no guarantees that you will be the final catalyst that causes her to finally admit to herself how broken she is, how many people she's hurt, and how she needs to finally do something about it. But at this point, she's dragged you over the mud too many times, and has hurt you and your daughter too many times. Neither of you owe her that. You have done absolutely all you can do, more than she deserves, and it's time you do that one last thing and just end it not just because it could be her catalyst but because it is the best decision to do i think you already know that though i can see it in the things you've written today there's absolutely nothing wrong with leaving in this situation but there's plenty of good that could come from it for you your daughter and maybe your friend thank you for listening to the darkest corner podcast remember my ears are always open If you have a story, a question, or maybe even a topic suggestion for an episode, please visit PantsPending.com slash DCQuestions. The process is entirely anonymous unless you choose to identify yourself. Take care, everyone. And remember to have an absolutely fantastic day, because you deserve it. This podcast is a Pants Pending Studios production and part of the Pants Pending Studios Podcast Network. Find more of our great shows just by searching Pants Pending in your podcatcher. For more information or to contact us directly, visit us at pantspending.com. Please subscribe to this show, share it with your friends, like it on Facebook, and rate it on iTunes. And we thank you for making us a part of your listening day. Pants Pants Pending. Pants Pending. Pants Pending. Pants Pending. Pants Pending. Pants Pending. Pants Pending studios